Hi, my name is Ariane. I'm a traveler and I run a travel blog. Join me each week as I discover life, love, and the world. This is my Wonderlust Journey podcast. Hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of the Wonderlust Journey podcast. I am here with Cassia today, and she is a woman in business that I met through a friend, and we got chatting about travel, and of course, she mentioned her experience briefly with her travels to Afghanistan, so I thought it would be an amazing podcast episode to share. So welcome, Cassia. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm so excited. So we're going to go through some quick fire questions first. So what is your favorite travel style? That's actually not, yeah, that's hard to answer. I'm going to be honest. I love a good beach vacation, but um, I also love exploring cities. So so sometimes I like a little bit of both. I like to relax, but I also like the kind of go-getting vacation aspect where you get to see a lot of things quickly. No, that totally makes sense. Yeah, awesome. And uh, do you read one on your vacations? Again, it depends what kind of vacation. If it's a true beach relaxing vacation, I do love to read and I usually take four or five books with me. But if it's a more exploring kind of vacation, I don't read. Okay, awesome. And uh, so what was the last book that you did read? Uh, Last book I read was called Rising Strong by Brene Brown. Great book. Yep. Great book. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so next question, do you journal while on vacation? Uh, yes and no. I generally don't like to take time to journal while on a vacation. I do keep the note section of my iPhone open so I can just quickly jot down a place that we visited or like a restaurant that I really liked either beforehand or during the trip. If it's a kind of vacation or a travel experience where I'm staying for an extended period of time, I absolutely will do a little bit of journaling. Okay, window or aisle seat on a plane? Aisle seat. Aisle? Yeah, I like, or I value my freedom (laughs) to, you know, be mobile and get up when I want to get up. I don't like to climb over people. I believe in airplane etiquette. Um, So yeah, for sure, an aisle seat. Awesome. Okay, so talking about seats, I know this was not on the questions, but... (laughs) Do you recline? <laughs> oh, that's a big thing right now. Yeah, uh, you know what? I absolutely do recline, um, but I do like to just connect with the person behind me generally, even if it's just an eye contact thing or be like, hey, I'm just going to move back now. Yeah, I mean, I think those those mechanisms are built into the seat for a reason, but okay. it gets weird if one person doesn't. For sure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, uh, do you travel with backpack or luggage? Uh, I'm a luggage kind of girl. Awesome. Uh, How many countries and continents have you visited? Uh, I had to do the numbers on this last night, but I have visited 18 countries. Awesome. And I guess that's four four continents. Very cool. Yeah. Uh, So what's been the most memorable and your favorite country to visit so far? Oh, I love the favorite word. (laughs) Um, It's because it's so hard and anybody who knows me knows that I have lots of favorites. Um, But I think if I were to pick one, I'd say my favorite was probably Hong Kong. And I would say it's my favorite place to visit. Some people debate whether Hong Kong is a country or not. Technically, it's like a country and a city. Yeah, but yeah, it's probably one of my favorite places to go. Okay, so why? Why Hong Kong? 
Um, I have some family that live there. So it's always nice when you have family members in another country or place so you can stay with them or at least they know kind of the lay of the land and can point you in the right direction. But Hong Kong is just a very traveler friendly place to go. You get city, you get nature, you can go hiking. The shopping is fantastic. China is just a hop over the border. There's so much history there. People speak English. The food is fantastic. Dim sum. Dim sum. I mean, you said it. Yeah. So I think that's, there's so much to Hong Kong and a lot of people, I think, don't always think about going to a place like Hong Kong, but there's so much there. Awesome. Yeah. No, that sounds great. Uh, So what has been your most memorable travel experience thus far? I'd have to say moving to Afghanistan was probably my most memorable experience. And I know we're going to get into that in a little bit more depth, but I think just the process of packing up my life and moving from my life in Canada and moving across the world was was probably the most memorable experience. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, And then your best travel tip? Travel with an empty water bottle. Okay. Um, And I would say um, as much as flight attendants hate to fill up your water bottle on a flight when they see a two liter coming at them, it it totally beats those little cups that you get and trying to stay hydrated, especially on a long flight when you feel like you're constantly bugging them to be like, hey, can I grab some water? Can I grab some water? I just take an empty water bottle on my flight and then I just go fill it up or there's, you know, filtered water in airports, which is which is great. And then you can use it when you get to your destination as well. Yep. Well, that's, that's great. Awesome. Okay. So, and last not least, what do you do for a living? Oh yeah. (laughs) Well, yeah. So I, I just finished my, my master's degree from SFU. And so I more recently started with a company called or organization called Fraser Health. So I work as a business consultant for them. Um, And then on the side, I also own my own floral design, small business, so I've done some weddings and events and just, you know, things like Mother's Day and yeah. Awesome. So a little bit of both, some creative and some business. So awesome. Yeah, that, that sounds great. Okay, so let's dive into some of the questions. So you traveled solo as a woman in Afghanistan. So what was that like? It was, it was pretty eye-opening, to be honest. Yeah, I think when you talk about traveling solo as a woman like lots of things come to mind and I think if you talk to a man about the same kind of travel experience it would come out completely different they would be seeing different things they would be experiencing and feeling different things um and I know that just from some of the conversations I've had with some some men that I know that have also traveled to Afghanistan but I think for one the biggest thing is culturally there's a difference and so when they view a single woman, I think there's a big question mark. Um, And so how they interact with you can be a little bit challenging or awkward at the beginning. I think the biggest thing is, yeah, you're wearing a headscarf, you're you're covering your body totally to make sure you're being culturally appropriate. And the other big thing too, is just the freedom aspect when you're traveling and you're living there as a woman, your freedom is not the same as it is here. I know when I got there, there was this question of like, do women drive? And and for a lot of people, it's like, yeah, no, women shouldn't be driving. The locals absolutely were like, no, we don't think women should be driving. And for me, I was kind of like, ah, I really, 
I really want to drive. There's a car available. I think it's going to increase my ability just to get around and feel a bit more normal. So yeah, so I had an international driver's license and I was like, okay, like, we're going to do this. So yeah, it's definitely a bit scary. Oh, wow. And even amongst other women that I knew that were traveling as well, some of them were absolutely like, no, we're not going to be driving. That's just not what we're going to do here. And so I think individually, women make choices when you go to a country like that as to what is important to you. Yeah. Things like, you know, modesty in the in the culture in terms of, you know, covering your head, that's that's not a negotiable, like that's just what you do. Mm-hmm. But there was other things like driving and, and maybe certain places that you would go that for me, that was important to go do those things and experience those things. But yeah, so there's definitely ways to push boundaries and carve out that space for yourself, even though you're, you're traveling solo. Yeah. Yeah. No, I like how you, how you just said that. That's, yeah, that, that's amazing. So the big question, why Afghanistan? Yeah, that was a bit, that was a bit complicated. It was, um, it was just really on my heart. And a lot of people had been talking to me about Afghanistan, like people would randomly come and give me articles about Afghanistan. I had just finished a history degree, um, also did some political science in there. And I was just sort of int- interested in international relations and trying to figure out what did I want to do for for a job. And I come from an aviation family. So the guys in my family are all pilots. So my dad is a pilot. My brother's a pilot. My uncle's a pilot. My dad had worked overseas in Ethiopia when he was my age at the time, uh, working for flying World Vision airplanes uh, when there was the famine in Ethiopia. And so this idea of working overseas, using your skill set to go overseas and help other people was not a foreign concept to my family. And so, yeah, so just this idea of Afghanistan came up. I just really felt like it was on my heart. I felt like it was what, you know, God wanted me to be doing at that time. And then, yeah, somebody connected me to the organization that I ended up working for. And I reached out to a general email that I had for the organization. And I just said, you know, I introduced myself. I said, this is what I did. This is what my background was with my education. This is what my skill set was. This is what I was passionate about doing. And they got back to me so quickly and they said, you know, nobody ever volunteers for Afghanistan. <laughs> and, <amazing>. so, <laughs> and so, yeah, and it was, uh, the organization was an aviation nonprofit okay. that flew doctors, aid workers, medical supplies, and they were looking for somebody with an administrative skill set that could come in and just help with some of those basic kind of organizational needs. So that's kind of how that happened. And it was from basically the time that I contacted that organization to the time that I was overseas, I think it was about nine months. Wow. So it was a pretty quick process in terms of of going from nothing to moving my life across the world. So how long were you in Afghanistan for then? So I was there exactly 29 months. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. So you had nine months to basically prepare yourself. Yeah. So how did that go? (laughs) Preparing and preparing is, you know, mentally preparing. It's like physically preparing. It's all the things, right? Yeah. So I would say mentally, I just had this sense of peace that I knew that this is what I should be doing. Other people, I would say, didn't have that sense of peace for me, obviously. Obviously. I was 22. Okay. So I was young. You know, I had just finished 
my degree and it was kind of like, oh, you're going to go to Afghanistan. That's crazy. And, you know, some people had some pretty just hard things to hear. You know, I had certain people in my life that, you know, basically told me you're going to go over there and you're you're going to die like you're not going to make it back, you know, and those are very those are their fears speaking through, you know, and their emotions coming to the surface and it kind of just boiled over. Yeah. So so mentally having to navigate those conversations constantly for those 9 months leading up to me leaving was really really hard. I never second guessed what I was doing. I had absolute clarity around um yeah, just about my passion for doing that. I felt really well connected to the organization. They were absolutely available for me in terms of preparing of like what to pack and what to bring. And and uh, in terms of physically preparing, I took a security course. Okay. Um, down at Fort Sherman in the States, which is like a, a military base down there. And so that was very interesting. And they, interesting. Yeah, they put me through all kinds of um, scenario based studies, essentially. And so they, they would simulate, it sounds really scary, actually, but they would simulate like an abduction, they would simulate all the things that could happen to you and so it was it was a little bit scary like you're on edge for three days doing that and it was very stressful I would say but it taught me a lot just about what to expect what is reality what could happen yeah not that you're going into it you know fearing but you're just being realistic no but it's also preparing you yeah you know for the worst yeah because if you didn't prepare for that I'm sure you would might have reacted if it did happen yeah totally differently yeah And like, again, those are conversations that like mentally and physically, you're talking about those things. You're talking about the plans with your parents of like, what if something happens to you when you're overseas? Like, what is the game plan on this side of things? Like how, like, what are my parents going to do? Like, do they have somebody that like can contact the media for them in case like that hits the fan and all those things that come into play that people don't think about. But when you hear about you know, people or women that have been abducted in Afghanistan, like that's a very real chain of events that kicks in. Yeah. But we don't, we don't necessarily see that. We just see what the media kind of puts out there, but there's all this stuff going on in the background with the family and the governments involved and all this stuff. Right. So we had all those conversations, all those hard conversations and yeah, the security training and yeah, so my organization was very, very good at setting up those things to, to prepare me going in. Did you also register with the Canadian government yeah. to let them know that you Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, they ask for GPS coordinates and that kind of stuff, but it's like you can give them an approximate location of where you're going to be. But I think that is very important to do. And even just things like getting my my um, insurance, my medical Oh, okay. insurance right because yeah. that's not an easy thing not just any insurance company is going to insure you for going to a third world country that's riddled with you know all the things that go on there yeah you know because you're just thinking oh what if I get caught up in a riot well you know when something happens to me well insurance isn't going to cover you yeah. for a riot right yeah so just getting all of that information and and figuring out that aspect of it was part of the the preparation and going yeah um and I had a lot of support you know I absolutely had a lot of support and that was so wonderful and then in terms of just like practically packing I mean I packed feminine hygiene products for two and a half years because I didn't know what I could yes I did not know what I could get there (laughs) 
I mean, every woman's different. I don't know what they use. I mean, is it cardboard? Is it plot? Like, I have no idea, right? So I was like, I need this to be, you know, the one thing that that I take over with me. And I took over other things, just like things to make it homey for myself and the deodorant, you know, tons of deodorant that I use here and just think like nice things like nail polish and you know, the clothing that I thought I would need there. And yeah, yeah, so it was quite, quite an endeavor to pack all this stuff. So I took three 50 pound bags. Okay. Three 50 pound bags. Okay. And I took my violin. Really? Yeah. Yeah. So. Very interesting. Yeah. Why a violin? Well, I've played the violin for years. It's been about 17 years or so. And it was one of those things that, I was like, hey, a violin is just, it's how I, it's my creative side. Yeah. Violin, playing music. I know that it's a social thing, playing music with other people, something that people enjoy. Yeah, so I I took it over with me because I couldn't imagine going two and a half years without playing my violin. I couldn't even imagine it. So I took her over. And when I got there, I actually ended up teaching violin to, yeah, there was some, some expat children there that were wanting to do music lessons and so I was able to teach for a couple of years which was amazing and it was a really great way to connect into some of the communities that were there and the Afghans the the local people were just interested by it so yeah yeah so So what was kind of your I know this is probably getting a little bit off topic but what was kind of like your living situation yeah so the organization that I worked for they were able to put me into uh, a compound. And when I say compound, everybody lives in compounds there, including local people. So I think there's this idea that, oh, like, you know, what we see from the movies of a compound, and it's got like huge, you know, concrete walls and, you know, barbed wire and all that stuff and impenetrable gates and guards and all this stuff, right? That's not really a thing because it's, I mean, it is for, I think, government organizations and, you know, perhaps United Nations and different things like that. But for us, we lived just in the local community and I had, yeah, I had a place to myself. It's actually, it was bigger than the apartment that I got when I came back from Afghanistan, which is hysterical. It was about a thousand square feet. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was very good. Yeah, I had a huge living space. I had a bedroom. I had a little place to do some laundry, a bathroom, and um, a kitchen and a little walk-in pantry. Um, I had marble countertops because marble's like the cheapest thing there. Yeah, and then at one point I was like, oh, it's, it's so hot in Afghanistan during the summer. So I, I got a air conditioner installed. So yeah, so it was actually really good. I loved my living situation. I loved it. So my little, my little place was on the same property as another house. And there was two other expat couples from the States that were living in this house. And all of our neighbors were Afghan, all of them. So it's kind of like we're living right in this and they all have little compounds as well. So it's you're living like the locals essentially yeah and then the other thing that I absolutely loved and just a memory that I cherish from my living situation was the property I lived on had all these roses there was so many rose bushes and there was like this little fountain on the property and it was just like this stunning visual vacation for your eyes when I looked out of my window and I'm like I'm in Afghanistan but these roses are 
they're stunning. They're all these different colors and they just thrive in the desert. And so that's something that I, I think back on and there, that was quite impactful for me, I think. Mm-hmm. And I think where you, where you live when you're traveling is huge. Mm-hmm. It, make, it makes or breaks your, your experiences. For sure. Yeah. Totally agree with that yeah. statement. Okay, so let's kind of go back to you're just about ready to leave Canada. How are you feeling and how <laughs> does that flight over to Afghanistan? Yeah, I remember so distinctly the ride to the airport, the ride to Vancouver airport with my parents. And uh, it's like, there's just not a lot to say. Like, what else do you say (laughs) when your family's driving you to the airport? You've said, you've had all these conversations like we just talked about. Mm -hmm. You've said all the hard stuff. All the plans are in place. My dad's got all the documentation, right? In case anything happens, you get to the airport and it's like, okay, I'm I'm not waiting around. Like, I got to go. I got to get going. And it wasn't that, like, I was late for my flight or anything. It was just I couldn't stand around and just just be there. I couldn't be in that space anymore Mm -hmm. because mentally... I'm gone. So yeah, I said goodbye to my parents. And uh, I mean, I almost wish my mom was here <laughs> just to say what her what her experience of that was, because she told me after that she she and my dad got in the car and they just my mom just lost it like emotionally, Aww. like just absolutely couldn't keep it together because the gravity of like they just said goodbye to their 22 year old daughter. Yeah. It was so shocking. It was so painful, I think. And there's more stories coming on that. So I'll share that a bit later. But yeah, so I I left because I was like, I got things to do. I have multiple flights to catch and get all my luggage and all my stuff there. Yeah. And my flight over was great. All my bags arrived. I will say this, though, on my flight from Dubai into Kabul, I sat next to uh, a pretty, pretty gruff looking contractor. So in Afghanistan, there's a lot of contractors. There's a lot of, you know, guys that go over there for security details or they're doing, you know, black ops work. I don't even know. Right. Yeah. So I was sitting next to one of these guys and I remember we're just about to land and I've just, you know, we've just crossed the mountains. You can see Kabul coming and it's absolutely stunning. This crazy, this crazy view. And he says to me, he's like, welcome to Disneyland. And I was, you know, my heart's just like, oh my goodness, what have I done? Right. Cause it's just, it's just like, oh my gosh. Right. I'm like, I'm not even going to touch that comment. But, uh, you know, and then I get my headscarf in and then, yeah, go through customs and everything and met, met this, uh, this couple that was going to meet me at the airport. And, uh, that was that. Wow. Yeah. It's it crazy. Amazing. Yeah. It's it really good. <laughs> Okay, so we kind of touched on that a little bit already. Yeah. Let's talk about cultural differences, safety. I've personally heard Afghanistan is so beautiful. Yeah. Even showing you brought this beautiful photo album with you that you did of your trip and just some of the scenery of Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. I know for us, we normally go to immediately, as soon as someone says Afghanistan, a lot of people go to war-torn. Yeah poverty those types of things but seeing your book like your photographs are beautiful yeah so tell me a little bit about the cultural differences safety beauty of the country the people you met and kind of going through that yeah I mean I think I think the longer I lived there the more I just saw you know these beautiful people and I saw their genuine hospitality I just absolutely came to appreciate some of those really maybe unpredictable ways of their culture and 
Yeah, I mean, it, while it's stressful and you think, oh, war-torn, you think all these other things, that absolutely does exist there. You can see it. Like, you cannot go to Afghanistan without seeing that and it being up in your face. The poverty percentage there is so high, it's staggering. The amount of people that you see just sitting on the side of the street begging, the amount of times you get asked for food, money, water, wood to heat their homes is insane. I mean, I think it's hard sometimes going in Vancouver on the east side where you mm-hmm. where you get asked for for basic things as well and how hard that is. But but in Afghanistan, yeah, you're faced with it in in an even bigger way. But aside from that, there's this whole other side of people that I engaged with where yeah, I learned to cook Afghan food and people that don't have very much, but they offer it to you anyways and you go into someone's home that you know makes you know, almost no money, but they put out this beautiful food for you and they just share everything that they have. And that's just such an incredible, incredible thing. So I think, yeah, generosity and hospitality is a huge thing culturally. This idea of tea, sharing tea and sharing food, it's like a universal language. And it was something that was just so special when I look back on my times there. And I I did do language school for about six months. So I learned how to speak um, some Dari. But a lot of the people that I interacted with were wanting to speak English with me because they're trying to work on their English. And so some of my language learning tapered off. And there was times where I, where I wished I had more of the language to interact with some of the people that didn't speak English. Yeah, so culturally is really interesting. I was one of the only women that worked in my organization. Okay. Um, so typically being an aviation organization, you have a lot of men. You know, there's not a lot of females yeah. that are pilots. It's just the way it is, Demo- like, you know the way it is yeah so (laughs) um so yeah so I was in a really interesting situation where again like I had to sort of carve out this space for myself to just to have my own experiences and find women that I could connect with if I was a guy I remember there was this guy that from Switzerland that came and uh, we became quite good friends but he had a very different experience for me because he was able to go out with these Afghan local guys He'd be at the bazaar eating kebabs and naan and like all this stuff, right? And just his interactions were so much more just easy and they were, you know, he had a lot more freedom. Mm -hmm. And then I was sort of trying to find, okay, how can I have that kind of experience? But, you know, that's culturally appropriate. So there was a, there was a woman that I worked with in, in the office and I got to know her and her family and her sister and her mom. And, um, I went to multiple weddings with her, which was amazing. Oh, that's so cool. So there was just some really cool things. Yeah. I mean, I remember one time her and I were going to, I think it was one of her cousin's weddings and we got so dolled up and I was in heels in some ball gown and my makeup was done like crazy and I had this beautiful headscarf on and like a jacket that went over it felt like a million bucks and um, so yeah there's those really interesting things like even cultural beauty that's there that they value yeah and uh, yeah I think I went to 12 weddings in two and a half years wow so yeah so as a woman there are amazing things that you can experience Um, it just is going to look a little different yeah than maybe what some of the guys did so were you able to go out to the bazaars and things like that and kind of get that experience or is it totally, there is that difference? No, I mean, I absolutely did go out to the bazaars and I think more so at the beginning because I was language learning and I was really wanting to just get a feel for, you know, I've just 
plunk down into this little area and you're trying to get to know the area as well. Mm-hmm. I never built relationships with, you know, people that sold me bananas or anything like that. Like you're, but because you're just going there and you're wanting to see like, where can I get certain things? So I absolutely loved going into the bazaar. There was a bazaar right behind my house and it was just, yeah, it's crazy. It's such a crazy experience because you can, I mean, the fruits and vegetables are absolutely beautiful there. Really? I, I can't even express to you how nice they are. In some ways they're, they're nicer than what you get here because so few of it is imported. Like a lot of our stuff is imported. Um, and some of the stuff you're getting there, like the pomegranates, pomegranates were so cheap and so delicious. Um, right. And here they're expensive. Yeah. Yeah. There was some incredible, incredible things at the bazaar. So I'm glad I experienced that. Okay. Awesome. So tell me one thing that you purchase that's one of the most memorable things because I'm not so much into things anymore I'm more into the experiences totally but sometimes you do find these like hidden gems yeah and I know bazaars are great for that bazaars are great for that I came back with quite a few things from Afghanistan because A, I figured I would never go back there. And it was such a formative time of my life. And those, I think sometimes particular things are ways to commemorate your experience. And, you know, I know a lot of people, if they travel a lot and they come back and they have all this stuff in their house and it's crazy. So I just wanted a few, you know, key things. So I, one of the things I did bring back was a couple of carpets. So like the rugs, the Persian carpet. And those were quite special to me. I have two large ones. And every time I look at those, I that's just where my heart goes. In fact, I actually got married on one of them. Really? So I incorporated it into my wedding ceremony. Oh my gosh, that's so cool. Yeah, I'll show you a picture after. But yeah, it's um that was so important to me to have that kind of just the richness of my experience in Afghanistan to be part of my wedding, just because I think it became part of who I am, it because Afghanistan was so life changing for me that it was I wanted it to also be part of my wedding. So that's awesome. Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah, and carpet shopping in Afghanistan is such an experience. Like honestly, I wish everybody could experience it. It is so cool. It is so cool. I took my so my parents came to visit me in Afghanistan as well. Oh, very nice. So which was awesome, and I I took them carpet shopping and. Uh, Oh my gosh, I'll never forget my, uh, we had a driver take us to this particular um, area of Kabul that had all these carpet shops. And there was, there's a couple, you do get to know like the good ones of where you really like to go. And you mm-hmm. do kind of build connections sometimes with some of those, those owners. Mm-hmm. So I take my parents and we're carpet shopping. You have to take your shoes off when you go inside because you, you're walking on carpets. And then uh, we finish up, we buy our carpets. I think my parents even bought one or two like little ones. And uh, we come out and next thing I know, like I see my mom getting into like some vehicle and I was like, mom, 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 like, where, where are you going? And my dad's like, Judy, you know? So, and then my mom was like, oh my goodness. Cause all the vehicles looked the same. Oh, no. And so we had a good laugh about that. Then my mom's like getting into some random vehicle, <laughs> like who knows where that's going. And so it's just like, I'll never forget that, uh, when my parents came. So anyways, it's all good. Oh my gosh, that's so amazing. Yeah. Okay, so let's talk about safety because I know that's a big thing. So how did you feel like when you first arrived into the country? Like tell me about kind of safety in Afghanistan. For sure. A lot of people, I think number one question I got even when I came home from Afghanistan was, did you feel safe? 
Honestly, if I had a penny for every time I was asked that, it's crazy. (laughs) I'd be rich. (laughs) Yeah. So was I safe? I feel like the word safe was not ever part of my vocabulary there. Ever. Not ever. And that's not to say that I, I just wouldn't articulate it that way. I would never say, yeah, I was safe in Afghanistan. I don't think you're ever safe. I think that there are things that you can do to build into your day, into the way that you live and operate in Afghanistan that increase your security. Okay. But safety and security are two different things. That is very true. Yeah. So I would say like our the security measures that we had put in place, and these aren't we, these weren't things that I came up with. These were things that the organization that I worked with were like, this is what you do. There is there is no option for you. Mm-hmm. You have to carry a cell phone. You have to carry a radio. You have to flight follow. And flight following is is hilarious because for me, coming from a a pilot family, I know what flight following is, but a lot of people that don't may not. But flight following is, Joe, I've left my house. I'm headed to the bazaar. You check in when you get there and then you check in when you get home. And you are, you're either calling in with somebody or you're texting them or you're on the radio. We all had like radio names, like we're like a Charlie Charlie or like I was Hotel Nine. So, which Hotel 9 was just the the number that was assigned to my house. So, it's so it sounds it sounds complicated and kind of like we were like running like black ops or something, no, but like interesting. <laughs> but it was just a security measure that we put in place just to make sure that we knew at all times where people were. Mm-hmm. And I really appreciated that cuz as a single woman when I was there, I didn't actually feel like I had anybody looking out for me in the same way than if than if I was married or with a partner. Right? I come home there's nobody at home that knows that I've gotten home unless I tell someone. That's true. Right? Yeah. So I think that's a huge difference. I think that I personally experienced just being there as a single woman is that I really felt like I had to make sure that that was in place for myself. And yeah, so flight following, having two forms of communication, that was huge. We had a, a nightly check-in at 9 p.m. Uh, so at 9 p.m., the different people in my organization, because we all didn't all live on the same compound. We were spread all across the little area of the city that we lived in. Okay. So we would all call in month to month. We would change who was running the call in. So if I was running the call in, I would, you know, have a list of all the people like hotel one through 12 of those, you know, houses that needed to call in by 9 p.m. I remember there was one time that I missed check-in I missed calling at 9 p.m. because I was out at some military base downtown Kabul and oh my gosh I got the gears for that one because what happens is the team kind of goes into overdrive because they're going we can't get in touch with Cassia we don't know where she is she's not answering her cell phone I can't get her on a radio you know so and some of that's like me that's my bad right like that's a hundred percent on me and so by the time you realize that people are looking for you know they've spent an hour half an hour kind of in this like overdrive of like we need to locate her yeah I don't want to say it's like panic or fear but it's you know then they're just mad at you they're just annoyed because they're like come on guys here right so you get the (laughs) gears for that and that's a hundred percent fair so that was sort of some of the the security measures we put in place there was one time that I was traveling outside of Kabul in an area where only a satellite phone worked right so you're making sure okay I got a sat phone Yeah, so things like that, that was important, making sure you always had the numbers of your drivers. I had a couple of drivers that I could call on from my organization if I wanted to go a little bit further than walking distance or or if we didn't feel safe walking because maybe there was an incident that had happened. 
So the other the other big component of living in Afghanistan is that there are a lot of security incidents that happen. There's riots, there's bombs that go off, there's kidnappings, there's political instability, there's protests, there's all the things that happen in any kind of third world country that's unstable. Mm-hmm. So the area that I lived in was right around the corner from the parliament buildings. Some people would say, oh, that's great. But it's like, I kind of, sometimes I was like, oh my gosh, I wish I didn't live here. There was a woman that lived across, an Afghan woman that lived across the street from me. And she was pretty sure member of parliament, which is very progressive. Awesome. Amazing. Mm -hmm. But while I was living there, she was kidnapped. (gasps) So it, it's crazy. Like I'd walk her, I'd walk out my front door and I would, you know, see her, yeah. you say hello to her, you know what I mean? It's kind of crazy. So, so that happened while I, while I lived there. So yeah, there's always things happening in the background that you're, you just don't know of. And I think that's the biggest thing of when people say, oh, should I go to Afghanistan? I'm like, why are you going? Do you know somebody there? Do you know the security intel on the ground? Do you have a contact that can give you that information? Because for me, when you're under the umbrella of an organization, you're connected in Mm -hmm. to local people as well as you're connected in to, yeah, just the, uh, we had something called ANSO reports come out and I am blanking on what that means or the acronym, but they would send out reports on if there was security incidents or if there was potential unrest coming down the pipeline in certain areas. And so we could avoid those areas or sometimes the head of our organization in Kabul would say, you know what, don't go to this area of Kabul today or for the next week because there's some things happening and we would just avoid those areas. But those things dictated to us sometimes how, yeah, how much freedom we had Mm -hmm. to do certain things. I think one of the most memorable things that I remember happening in terms of safety security was when there was a gunfight that broke out on the street that I live in. And I think that was, that was pretty eye-opening there at, you know, at the time there was bullet holes in, in my compound walls. There was RPGs that were involved. Oh my gosh. Um, you know, and you're hearing all this going on. And of course, like I'm not out on the street, like I'm not standing out on the street when this is happening, of course, but you go, your organization goes into a bit of a lockdown mode, right? Where you, you go into your house, you stay inside, you stay away from the windows, you're not going outside, you know, but you're, and you're doing that check-in process to make sure you've located everybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that was pretty, yeah, there was a lot going through my I was mind. I say, that's pretty intense. Yeah, it was quite intense. Yeah. And I think it just, it brought things into reality for me. It, you know, because you can go like for weeks and weeks and weeks with no incident. You think, oh man, this is just like amazing. Things are great. This is so, yeah, there's just been no spikes in security. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden something will spike and it's, it kind of just brings things back into, into reality of where you live. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So let's, let's kind of change gears into something slightly positive because, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's a very intense, but it's interesting. Yeah, it is. Yeah. You know what I mean? Again, kind of drilling back to your book that you brought this morning, this morning. Mm-hmm. It's, be- it's a beautiful country. Yes. And so tell me some of the highlights with the beauty and that kind of thing. Like, tell me some of, like, did you get to travel within Afghanistan very much? Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, so some of those photos, yeah, are, are pictures taken of places that I've seen. And I remember when my dad, 
So I'll tell you where I've been, but also even when my dad and mom came to visit, my dad was able to go on one of the flights that my organization... So so in Afghanistan, we had four airplanes. We had two Kodiaks and two King Airs. Okay. There was a handful of pilots, a couple of mechanics, and then myself. So that was sort of like the makeup. And we were doing flying doctors, aid workers. We were dropping off medical supplies in really remote areas. And so, you know, building airstrips so that people don't have to take horses and supplies and take, you know, two weeks to get somewhere. They can take a 30 minute flight. That's amazing. Yeah. So that was sort of like the premise. And maybe I should have sort of said that at the beginning of this conversation as well. So when my dad and mom came to visit, I connected my dad with one of our pilots and he hopped on his flight and he went up to a place called Kret, K-R-E-T, Kret. And it is in the thumb of Afghanistan. So if you look at the country of Afghanistan, there's like this like thumb area that goes up towards into like Mongolia, like the Hindu Kush kind of area. Yeah. So it is our most remote airstrip up there. And so he got to go up there and it was just, yeah, I mean, I saw saw pictures from it. I didn't go up there myself and it's, it's incredible. It's absolutely incredible, this beauty. When my brother and sister-in-law came to visit me as well, my brother, I got him on a flight down to Kandahar. Okay. And uh, we were doing a medevac. We were medevacking a gunshot wound victim back to Kabul. So my brother, here my brother, he is a pilot, but my brother was just going as like a observer, right? And he's like actively involved in this like, you know, <laughs> medevac back to Kabul, which I thought was hilarious, but it was a great experience for him. Yeah. But yeah, in terms of the beauty, it's just breathtaking, there was an area of Afghanistan we went to called Bamiyan, and Bamiyan, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's incredible. Like, huge, huge blue lake called Bandi Amir, and the, the water is as cobalt blue as you can get. Wow. It's absolutely amazing. Just some of the other places, there was an, a place I went to called Herat, H-E-R-A-T, and that was a little bit more conservative even than Kabul, so, like, I wore the full, like, black... A jacket and everything had to be fully covered because it's so conservative. But yeah, it's incredible up there. And just in terms of the landscape and the views and the food, it's just a little bit different than the food in Kabul. Yeah, you you never grow old seeing, you know, the Hindu Kush mountains and uh, the snow-capped mountains that you see. And I mean... Yeah, I'll share a photo with you as well that maybe you can share with your followers also. But there's a a photo that was taken of me wearing a headscarf and I have like my long skirt and jean jacket and I'm standing in an olive or um, an almond grove, which is crazy. And it was in full blossom. And so there's these like incredible, incredible beauty there. Sounds so good. Yeah. Yeah. So take us like through what your day to day was like. So you mentioned, you know, you had to do your check-ins, things like that. But what, because even the organization that you were working for sounds quite interesting. Yeah. So I would, my main role was to be a help and support to the country director, which is sort of like, or like the executive director of our organization in country. So I would, it's like an office job. Like I would go to the office. Right. Monday, you know, it wasn't Monday through Friday because in there it's different. I guess it was different days of the week. Their their Saturday and Sunday was like a regular working day. They had Fridays off there. Thursdays and Fridays was like their Saturday, Sunday. Okay. Yeah. So I would go to the office on regular sort of work days. And yeah, it was just like administrative functions and, you know, working with finance on, you know, clients that were booking air services 
Um, and I also became the flight booking manager in country. So I had two Afghan staff who were flight schedulers and they were responsible for, you know, booking passengers on all the variety of flights that we offered. Yeah, it was very administrative in nature. And also I was helping coordinate if there was like a new pilot coming in country or like a mechanic coming to to the country to help organize some of their housing, organize pickup from the airport, you know, make sure they had some meals, stuff like that, right? So it's just sort of like a real team effort, did things like annual reports and helped with some of the reporting structure. And yeah, I mean, I'm just trying to think back to like all the things that I did, but it's like... <laughs> so maybe even like, let's go, so the moment you woke up, yeah. what was kind of like the first thing you did in the morning? Because I know tea is huge. Tea is huge. <laughs> I'd always have tea at the office, but I would say I'd woke up usually just like get dressed, make sure that I'm like, you know, culturally appropriate, my covered, like, am I wearing a long tunic? I would generally wear jeans or leggings okay. and like a long tunic, usually like a sweater, depending on what time of the year it was, put a headscarf on, you know, do my makeup and which was like pretty minimal, but I still like to do my makeup and yeah, I would grab some breakfast. I could usually get yogurt from the bazaar and, okay. you know, some pomegranates or you could even get cereal. There was a place called Bush Bazaar, which is like from George W. Bush. They call it the Bush Bazaar, and it's like all the stuff that falls off the truck. Yeah, oh, 100%. 100% that is there. It's not even not even a lie. Yeah, yeah, so so we could get things like cereal. Like, you could literally get Lucky Charms because... because <laughs> you heard it here, people. Lucky Charms exist in Afghanistan. They do. I mean, I don't think it was destined for the Afghan people or anything. Sure. I think it was definitely like a rerouting of a truck that happened. So there, there was some really fun little luxury things you could get, even oh, some of the things crazy. that were meant for the military. Yeah. So I could get some, some things like regular cereal and you could get milk, you know, the milk that you buy that's uh, not refrigerated milk. It's just boxed milk. Okay. Yeah. I don't know how many chemicals are in that milk to make it edible, but whatever. You're eating it, right? <laughs> so I also did learn how to make my own almond milk because almonds are so cheap in Afghanistan. Oh, They're nice. so cheap. So I would just soak almonds overnight in filtered water and then I would, you know, blend them up with I, I brought in a blender mm -hmm. and then I would blend them up with a little bit of vanilla and this, that and the other thing. And then so I had nice almond milk at least. Wow. Yeah. So I would just kind of do do my morning routine, whatever, get out the door. Sometimes I would drive myself. Okay. Sometimes I would walk to work because it wasn't too far. It was maybe like um, we moved offices partway through me being there. It used to be two minutes walk. And then it, we moved, so it was about a 15-minute walk. Okay. So the days, I remember the days, like, when I would walk to work, there was a couple experiences that I had where, like, a group of dogs would come after, yes, would, yeah, I know your face right now, would come after me. And I remember being so scared because, you know, they talk about, you know, rabies, dogs having mm -hmm. rabies. Yeah, freaked me right out. So I had a, definitely a couple dogs that would just, like, snap at your heels, right, and you're just, you're going. <laughs> yeah. So sometimes, yeah. So sometimes I'd be like, I'm just going to, you know, either get driven. Sometimes it was just easier to get picked up by one of our drivers and our drivers were so good, so kind. You know, they both spoke some English and just like absolute gentlemen. And it was just such a pleasure to, to work and drive around with them. So couldn't say enough about that. And, um, yeah, I would get to the office 
and then kind of just see the layout of my day. Maybe there were some meetings that I had to go to. Sometimes I would go with the executive director to some client meetings of people that potentially wanted to fly with us. You know, how do we set them up in our books of, you know, how do they book their own people or they're doing projects in a certain area? Maybe we don't have an airstrip there yet. So we're, you know, booking meetings for that. Yeah, just touching base with the different Afghans that we had employed with the organization. And yeah, and then I'll tell you, so sometimes I would say like maybe a few times a week, I'd have breakfast with the finance staff. Okay. This was so memorable. And this is probably going to go into like, if you do ask me about if I have any favorite dishes, this is where this goes. Okay. So one of my favorite dishes, because the, the guys taught me how to make this, there was maybe four of them in finance. So they would invite me into their little breakfast club in the mornings. Oh, nice. <laughs> and they would make something called tohom e rumi, which is tomatoes and eggs. To- or tohom is eggs and rumi is uh, tomatoes. And so it was, they would fry up basically lots of oil, eggs. They would grate tomatoes. So you're not getting the skin. You're just getting the inside of the tomatoes, jalapenos. And then you would dip fresh naan into it. And the eggs were runny and Oh my gosh, it, I've made it since being back at home. It's not quite the same because the non is not the same. My word, it just like makes your day. That sounds amazing. It was so, so good. Yeah, so that's kind of like what my, the beginning of my day looked like. I would always have tea at the office. I didn't drink coffee when I, when I lived in Afghanistan and I didn't drink coffee until I moved home. So it wasn't like I needed like a kickstart or anything. It was just, Mm -hmm. I'm kind of just doing the things with the people. And then going home from what was kind of like after work, going home. Yeah, we'd go home. I'm trying to think if I'd go home around like 3.34 or so, if I'd start pretty early in the morning. Yeah, and then sometimes there would be people that would invite me over for dinner. There, I made a really close friend where we would sometimes go out for dinner. There was a fantastic Korean place around the corner from us, and they had like beef bulgogi and rice and oh my gosh korean korean bimbap or whatever those those rolls are that they make oh so good so yeah there was some like incredible things like that sometimes i would call up my friend and be like hey you want to go get lebanese tonight and we would book a driver honestly we took taxis in afghanistan taxis we had taxi numbers and we would call them and say can you pick us up at this location and they were so good. They were so good. I'm, I mean, I don't advocate this just for anybody, but we kind of got sure. to know the lay of the land. And we'd go downtown to this Lebanese restaurant. I think I took all of my family there when we got there. And it was, like, incredible. There's hookah there. Wow. Amazing <laughs> Lebanese food. It was incredible. That's amazing. So, yeah. So, nighttime, yeah. It's, we would be doing social things like this. Or sometimes I would just be at home, like, watching TV or playing the violin or teaching violin lessons or, mm-hmm. you know, playing board games. Okay, so now let's get into some of the most memorable experiences that you had. So, good and bad. So let's talk about the best travel experiences and the most memorable ones that stick out for you. When I think about trying to stay warm in Afghanistan over the winter, that was such such a thing. I can't even express to you. Really? It is. So, it gets so cold in Afghanistan. Like, where I was, it was reaching, like, minus 20, minus 25 like glass would shatter on my countertops, my toothpaste would freeze, my olive oil would freeze, the inside of my single pane windows would be a sheet of ice, I could see my breath in my house, I would be so cold, I would feel sick. It was the most 
pendulum swing kind of weather that you could imagine because you're going from extreme heat to, you know, the winter months where you're now into minus 20, 25. That is insane. Yeah. In terms of heating my house, the reason I'm talking about it as a memorable experience is because it was such a integral part of just trying to live well. There was trying to stay warm. Yes. Really? Yes. So the first year that I was there, I had a barrel of A1 jet fuel sitting outside of my house that I would go and I would put it into, we call it a bukhari. It's like the, the heating thing mm-hmm. and you would pour jet fuel into it and you would turn it on and that's what I burned to stay warm in my house. And it would only heat the one room of my house. That gave me headaches because if you're smelling jet fuel all the time, it's not great. It's like smelling gasoline at the pump, right? It's bad. It's bad for you. For sure. So I did that for the first winter and then I learned that I needed to move on to something else because I was like, I can't keep burning jet fuel. So I moved to burning wood, which was so much better. So I got a wood stove imported from uh, the north of Afghanistan where they were making these beautiful beautiful stoves like they're incredible I wish I had a picture to show you and I got a huge one and I bought all this wood for the winter I learned how to make fires to heat my house wow it was amazing so yeah that was such a memorable experience I would say good and bad because you would wake up in the morning and you would be so cold your fingers would hurt everything hurts right like the basic things and then after work you'd come home to a frigid house Right. It's just, you know, you're trudging through snow to get home and whatever. Like it's, it's quite an experience, right? Yeah. At one point there's a, we call them chokey doors. They're um, people that we employ that live on the, or they stay, do a shift on the compound and they're there to like answer the door, the main gate door. They can run out and grab groceries for you, but they're mostly there for security. Just they're not armed or anything like that, but they're there just for the support and, and your own security was the main, the main thing. But they took pity on me and I and I was like, okay, I'm coming home to a really cold house and they they started actually lighting the fire for me before I would get Aww, home. Oh, that's so nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so maybe like an hour before I would come home from work, they would go into my place and they would light the fire. They would get a fire going. So by the time I got home, it was so nice and warm. Aww. So it's iterative learning. You learn like the longer you stay there, how to make it a little bit better for yourself. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so... <laughs> Yeah. Oh, that's so good. So that was a pretty memorable experience, I would say. Another memorable experience, like maybe not so great, was I was actually quite sick in Afghanistan during the winter months. There's a spectrum of people where some people would never get sick. And we're talking like colds, bronchitis, pneumonia. Mm -hmm. You know, there's all of that. And then there's also like the parasites, the things that you're eating, the water that you drink that could make you potentially sick. Right. I had all of that, all of it. Oh no! I took twelve rounds of antibiotics in two and a half years, and uh, which like maybe isn't unusual, but I was told that I was kind of on the extreme end of <laughs> oh, no. of people getting sick there, and I was like, you know, and it really wasn't it wasn't around food or water so much. I was pretty good with those things, um, and again, you learn the longer you're there how to get you know good water, how to make sure you're not getting sick from food and all that kind of stuff. Even when you go to people's homes, that like you know how to maybe decline certain things that you know isn't safe for you to eat. For sure. 
But in terms of, yeah, it was just more, I would say, the cold, the weather that um, that really got me in the winter months. And at one point, I was taken to a French military hospital outside of Afghanistan because the doctor that I saw wanted to rule out tuberculosis. And that's how like unwell I was, to be honest. And And I think, again, this goes to speak as a single person. Nobody is seeing you in your most private, intimate moments. Mm-hmm. When you package yourself together for the outside world, but when you go home, you pass out in your bathroom because you're coughing so hard or you're, you're throwing up all night because of whatever, like nobody sees that side of it. Mm -hmm. And I really struggled with that being single and being as sick as I was because then people see you and they're like, oh yeah, like you look pretty good because everyone's kind of, you know, got all their things that are going on yeah so it was at the point where I was like I need to go and get this testing done like chest x-rays and this that and the other thing just to rule out some of these things that was a pretty memorable experience even just getting into the French military hospital was was an experience wow so yeah yeah I didn't have tuberculosis which was wonderful (laughs) yeah oh my gosh I think food was an, a huge experience for me. Okay, let's talk about the food because that was definitely going to come up. Like, yeah, food, shopping the market, so your good. Favorite dishes, so good. Like, hit me. I love food. So, so best thing is they have non boys, which is like a non bakery, and they're they're everywhere. They're on the corners of everywhere, and you just see these. It's literally the corner of a building, and you walk up to them, and it's like these big glass. So you can see into the bakery and these guys sitting around this fire of making non bread. Mm-hmm. It's incredible and it's cheap. It was five cents, five cents for a huge piece of non. And I love sometimes after work, I would just, I would get uh, a piece of non and they would inside, they would wrap it around kebabs Ugh. and the kebab juices would like soak into the non and it was just so, so good. It was so good. So that was it. That was a really good kind of like street food experience but everybody buys their non that way that's just how it's made it's how people get it and you buy it right before you're going to eat because that's the freshest yeah yeah and then I mean at the office every day they had a cook there that would make lunch for all of the staff okay so every day I kind of got to try you know the local Afghan food at work which was wonderful I would say Afghan food's quite oily so sometimes it was like, oh, do you want some okra with that oil? Like it's quite, you know, we kind of joke about it because it's so, you know, it's not really the epitome of health food, I would say, mm-hmm. but it is delicious. It's more comfort food. It was like comfort food. Like some's like more delicious than others. Like the national dish in Afghanistan, which I grew to love is called kabuli palau. And it's a bed of rice. And underneath all this rice is it, you have your meat and it's like falling off the bone. And then they have caramelized carrots on top with almonds and yeah, onion is very, very good. Very delicious. Yeah. And then the other favorite dish that I have that I also learned how to make from one of the locals there is called mantu. And I think a lot of cultures have a a similar version like gyoza, pot stickers, all these things that are kind of like a dumpling with filling. Mm -hmm. Uh, So these are steamed dumplings. And then they have like a beautiful tomato sauce that go over top and you can put cilantro on it. And it's like, it's actually delicious. When I got home, I made it for a huge group of my friends that came over and it's such a good time. It's so good. You just put the whole thing in your mouth and it's, yeah, it's really, really delicious. Sounds so good. Yeah. 
So how was like shopping in markets? Like I know we kind of already touched a little bit on yeah. that. Like you can get lucky charms. <laughs> bush at the Bush Bazaar. <laughs> the bush it's bazaar. a thing. Oh yeah. Gosh. Yeah. But how was like shopping for, because you already kind of mentioned this, but even like vegetables, fruits, all that kind of stuff, it was all in season. Yeah. But how was shopping in the winter months? Yeah. So, I mean, different things are going to be available at different times. So then you're just adjusting how you're how you're cooking or what kind of dishes are sort of coming out. But yeah, I still felt that there, yeah, there was never a shortage of what you could kind of get there. I'm just trying to think the things, pomegranates are the things obviously we talked about that those like stick out in my mind because I love pomegranates. So that's what I always think about. But yeah, like cucumbers, tomatoes, like they were absolutely beautiful. Nothing's genetically modified there. So delicious. Like the onions... The watermelon is incredible. It's like incredible. The oranges are so good. Yeah, one of the guys I worked with would bring me boxes of oranges because he knew, you know, he knew I liked them and it was just so nice. It's just so refreshing. Yeah, so fruits and vegetables are brilliant. They're cheap. They're really, really inexpensive, plentiful. And then other things, lots of nuts, nuts and dried fruits and that kind of thing those are all really plentiful like like I said almonds are super cheap so I'd always buy lots of those and then like shopping for other things yeah it's just anything like shaving cream like you can get those kinds of things there I don't know what the quality of those things are Mm -hmm. I mean even in terms of uh, if you needed antibiotics or you needed medications like you could get those at the bazaar I mean sometimes they would talk about oh it's just a sugar pill because it's not actually the real deal thing So you have to know, it's like, is this the placebo effect of I'm taking something and I feel better? Or is this actually medication? (laughs) Good to know. Right? So so there's that. I mean, things like water. I would get water delivered every couple of weeks. Big jugs of filtered water. And I had a filtration system, which was awesome. Some of the people that I worked with would filter their own water. I'm not a fan. I don't have time for that. That's crazy. But they would do it. So they would literally take tap water and they would put it outside in jugs for 24 hours and the sun will kill whatever bacteria or whatever is in that water and then they would drink it. That's not my jam. No. I'm not going to do that. (laughs) That to me, that's like risking my life unnecessarily. I'm already in Afghanistan. I don't need to drink filtered water that I've filtered. Like that better be filtered before I'm drinking it. So... So, but I mean, to be honest, when you go to somebody's house and they offer you, they would take like a two liter Coke bottle that's filled with clear liquid, aka water that's come out of the tap probably, and they would pour it for you, oh. right? So generally when I would go to somebody's house, I would I would prefer tea because I know at least that the tea, it's boiled. the water has been boiled yeah. to some degree, maybe not boiled enough to kill whatever's in it, but it's at least hot. That's true. So you're making choices like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, other shopping, I did, I did lots of clothes shopping. Okay. There's like beautiful, like, you know, similar to sort of like the Indian suits or Pakistani suits that you can buy. There's a lot of that kind of stuff. Cause all of those countries are, you know, they're around each other. It's all central Asia. The stands. Some of the, the stands, some of the <laughs> style looks the same. So yeah, when I was going to weddings, I would go out and, you know, try and find like a new outfit or like a dress or something that I could wear to a wedding that was fancier. I got some clothes made as well, so I would go out and buy fabric. Oh, wow. Yeah, and I think a really memorable experience was when I went with one of the women who was the wife of one of the pilots I worked with. We went to a fabric bazaar 
where there is so much fabric. It's like fabric land on steroids. Like really, wow. it was crazy. It was amazing. It was amazing. So we were buying fabric because I was getting toe shacks made and toe shacks is like the low Eastern couches that you see. So like a long flat pillow thing that you sit on and then you, there's pillows behind you, but you're essentially sitting on the ground, mm-hmm. but it's just a little bit of a cushion. So that's what they would sit on traditionally. Yes. So I had those made for my house. Oh, very cool. Cause yeah, you're just not out buying couches and that's just not really available. So yeah, I went and found fabric for curtains for my house and then fabric for these toe shacks, these couches that I made for my house as well. And that was a great experience. Oh, that's so That cool. was really great. Oh, that's so awesome. Yeah. In your opinion, why shouldn't or shouldn't people travel to Afghanistan? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I think, yeah, and I think some of it comes back to that whole question of like, oh, did you feel safe, right? And it's, I traveled to Afghanistan and lived there with a lot of parameters in place that people who just show up in Afghanistan don't have. Mm Mm-hmm. So I remember, I remember carpet shopping with a girlfriend of mine one day in Kabul and our driver was waiting for us outside. People knew where we were and we met these two American guys in there and they were like mind blown seeing these two women, two white women, right? They were mind blown seeing us and they, you know, they got talking to us and, you know, I asked them, I said, hey, like, are, like, what are you guys here for? Like, who do you work for? Oh, we're just traveling around. I was like, what? Yeah, we're just, we're just backpacking. I'm like, you're an idiot. You know, that's literally, <laughs> I didn't tell them that. <laughs> you're a dum-dum. So <laughs> I was like highly concerned for them because to me that, that is the definition of unsafe. Yeah. That really is. Yeah. You don't, nobody even knows where you are. You don't have security information, regardless if it's accurate or not. You don't, you don't have any connections in country to local people. You don't know places that you shouldn't be going. You don't have a transportation system. You don't speak the language. Those are all strikes against you. I'm not saying you shouldn't do it. I just think that you should really think carefully about why you're doing it. What's your purpose? And, you know, do you have a backup plan for any of those things? For sure. Yeah. So, I mean, is Afghanistan, like Afghanistan has changed even since I've lived there. Uh, One of my friends still lives there and it's different than even when I was back there in 2013. I wouldn't say don't go. I would just say try and connect yourself with somebody that you do know that's there. Because uh, the reason I'm asking is we're now seeing within the last couple years that there are some tour companies. Yep that have now started these tours and some of them are actually specific for women travelers who want to go. So what are kind of your thoughts on properly organized group tours within Afghanistan? I guess I've never really thought about doing a tour in Afghanistan. And to be honest, when I was there, I never even saw anything like that, maybe because they didn't exist yet. Mm -hmm. Do I want people to see... Afghanistan in the same way that I saw it? Absolutely. I mean, it is such a rich culture. There is so much beauty to see just in terms of like the landscape, you know, some of the hospitality, the food, and it's just the experience of a lifetime. 
I absolutely believe that. I just really believe that before you go, you just do your research. Just know what you're getting into. You know, everything from the culturally appropriate side, you know, the religion that's operating in the country, some of the rules and the strictness culturally that exist. I think just be really aware of that. I would never say don't go, but I think that just know what the company's offering in terms of, you know, is there a security, you know, do, are they connected in with local people? Is it a local person giving the tour? I would want to know just some of that information before, you know, recommending that or, or, you know, suggesting that somebody go do it that way. I think I would just have a lot of questions if I was going to be a solo traveler doing that group about, security and like the know the places that you're going and you know what the purpose is of the places that you're going like are you going to see like tourist sites because there's some touristy things in Afghanistan Mm -hmm. you know if you're going to Bamiyan you're going to see Bandi Amir Lake and you're going to see like these this tomb site that's there like those are two main things that you're doing there but it's like if you're going and you don't know what the itinerary is I'd be concerned about that For sure. So it's being educated. And then I think also, you know, if you're able to find out or I mean, I don't know how these companies vet groups that go, but just to know a little bit about some of the people you will be traveling with, I think I for me, that would be important. Maybe it's not important for other people, but I just like to know who I'm traveling with. No, for sure. Because you don't want someone who thinks it's a Kentucky tour and decides that (laughs) party on. Yeah, totally. (laughs) Well, and like the place for it. (laughs) No, I mean, also Afghanistan's a dry country, right? Like you got to know stuff about, you know, you're not going there to, you know, drink and party and have fun. Like it's not quite that kind of. I'm sure, though, people that are going to Afghanistan know some of those things. Yeah, but, uh, for sure. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> so did you stay in just Afghanistan or did you travel to other countries within both that area? Yeah, so part of the experience was, you know, I'm not in Afghanistan for 29 months straight. They do believe in getting out and getting a break. So about every six months I would leave the country for even two weeks. Oh, okay. Just kind of get a breather and then come back in. I never came all the way back to Canada because that's just way too expensive and way too far. And emotionally couldn't handle coming all the way home and then leaving again. So yeah, I went to Thailand a couple of times. Oh, uh, I'd go to Dubai because Dubai was only a three-hour flight away. At the time when I was there, Canadians did require a visa going into the UAE because our governments weren't seeing eye to eye on a number of things. Gotcha. Now, so now they... <laughs> They've, they took away the need for Canadians to have visas, which which made it a lot easier to go there. Because when you just want to go for like three, four days, it's and you have to pay a $250 visa, it's like it's not worth it. Yeah. So I didn't go to any of the other stands, if that's what you're wondering. <laughs> I wish I did. I wish I did. And there was some opportunity. But honestly, when I was looking to travel outside of Afghanistan, I was really looking for a break, not another crazy cultural experience. Yeah. I was looking for a place where I could kind of just not turn off my brain, but not be as uh, vigilant or sort of turned on as I was generally in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. So. No, and that totally makes sense. Yeah. So I did do, yeah, I did Europe. I did Thailand and uh, yeah, and the UAE. So. That's awesome. Yeah. So what are your tips for women looking to travel solo as a whole? Mm -hmm. So not necessarily to Afghanistan, but what did you kind of learn in your process of planning for your trip? Because I think we had this conversation, um, just you and I, a while ago, where you found that 
information mm-hmm. on trying to prepare for your trip was really non-existent at the time. Yeah, I mean, I think more and more now there's a lot of travel blogs out there where people are sharing their experiences. And I guess maybe I just wasn't looking in the right places for that kind of information. But one one place I did find, which I found quite helpful, was Government of Canada actually, you know, at travel.gc.ca. They have an article or a PDF that you can download download called Her Own Way, which is a, a woman's safe travel guide. Oh, awesome. So that actually was quite helpful. Um, it's maybe not as robust as maybe some, like what I would need going to Afghanistan, but in ge- for general traveling, uh, safety tips, very, very good. I would recommend anybody to read that. Just take a quick gander. Yeah. And I was really impressed just to see that kind of, yeah, that kind of article that there's an understanding that, yeah, traveling for women does look different than say if you're, you know, a group of guys traveling or just traveling solo as a guy. I would say like just some general travel tips that I think are important would be know something about where you're going before you go. Mm. Don't be naive. Don't show up and not have a plan for anything. You know, I think that's just like really basic. Um, Something else, have a smartphone that has some data on it. I think that's huge in today's day and age. Traveling isn't what it used to be 30, 40 years ago. I think having data and the ability to look up maps and look up a location that you want to go to can not only increase just the the fun that you have on your trip and the amount of things that you can see because you're able to look up those things, but it also allows you to pivot on the fly. Oh, this is now canceled. Oh, shoot. What do I do? Because I had planned my whole day around that and now I don't know how to get from here to here. Well, it's like, just look it up, have data you know, get a SIM card in the country that you're traveling to, have an unlocked phone if you can, so that you can put in another country's Mm -hmm. SIM card, like those really basic things. I think also just having a cell phone on you that has data, so like for safety, it's a huge safety thing. For sure. Make sure somebody knows your rough travel itinerary. And I think it's just another big travel tip. I have a couple more. Okay. A couple more. Keep your eyes peeled. I think in today's day and age, we all walk around looking at Instagram on our phone when we're crossing streets and, you know, we can get away with doing that in Vancouver. But I think if you're traveling, like you really can't, No. you can't afford to have your nose buried in your phone just because there, you might miss opportunities, but you also might not see some pitfalls that are coming your way that you maybe could have avoided. Yeah. Carry some cash. My mom's going to laugh at that if she hears this because I don't I don't carry cash here. But when I'm traveling, I do carry a little bit of cash. And then I think the last thing is respect the culture that you're in. Doesn't matter where you're traveling, if it's Dubai, if it's Jordan, if it's Egypt, if it's Mexico. Just respect the the culture and there's things that even as women we do and experience here that just are not accepted in these other places. Mm-hmm. So it's just kind of knowing some of those things and you can do research on that. But yeah, I think those are, I think those are kind of important. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. Yeah. Totally agree. Okay. So I hear that you had a very interesting story coming home. (laughs) Yeah. So coming home from Afghanistan, you know, you got all the emotions going on. You've just packed up your life in Afghanistan. Now I'm moving all my stuff home, but I decided to stop in France and do a, a bit of a debrief. I worked with an organization for a week and did debrief. And there was other people there that are also were moving or expatriating home. So yeah, they just it was an opportunity to, you know, reflect on what you've done and just how to think about repositioning and, and turning your head towards your home country. So that was awesome. However, 
I left Afghanistan, I have all my stuff, and I was traveling through Switzerland to France to see people, and I'm on a train with 350-pound bags of violin and a piece of carry-on. It's a lot. My right leg starts really hurting, and I was like, oh, that's weird. I just thought I kind of had pulled a muscle. I get to the debrief center in France, and my leg really hurts. Like, it's swollen... I don't know what I've done. I'm starting to freak out a little bit. And I couldn't even carry my bags upstairs. Like somebody had to carry them for me. And so uh, I ended up talking to one of the directors at this debrief center. And I just said, hey, like my leg's really hurting. Like, I don't know if I need to get it checked out or something. And he calls in another, another person that was helping at this debrief session, who happens to be a doctor, who happens to be a particular type of specialist. And uh, they start asking the questions, how many flights have you taken? You know, are you dehydrated? All these things. He looks at me and he says, I think you have a DVT, which is a deep vein thrombosis. It's a fancy word for a blood clot. Oh my gosh. I was 24 at the time. And so immediately I was like, oh my gosh, this is not good. And uh, I remember at one point actually like collapsing because I couldn't even, I could no longer put weight on my leg. And I called my dad and this is where this connects of like, Hey dad, you have all the information, you know, worst case scenario. Right. So I call my dad and I was a blubbering mess. I couldn't even, I could barely get the words out. And I was like, dad, like I'm in France. I, they think I have a DVT, like a blood clot. Like I'm going to emergency right now. It was, it was horrifying. It was so, so bad. It's like, here I have, I've survived two and a half years in Afghanistan, some work torn country, all the stuff that happened. And on my way home, I just about die. So I get to emergency. They were shocked as I was 24 years old. They did, you know, the ultrasound on my leg. And yeah, I have a massive blood clot. They put me on, <laughs> you know, so I started taking, you know, shots. I had to give myself these massive, massive shots oh my uh, into my quads just to, yeah, heparin or warfarin or whatever they give you for a blood clot. So it was pretty crazy. But the crazy thing too is what happened was my parents knew I'd left Afghanistan. Everyone's like, ah, oh, kind of this relief, like our daughter's coming home in a week. And then my brother calls my dad. They're both in Canada. And he, he just said to my dad, he says, I feel like something's wrong. I feel like something's wrong with Cassia. And my dad's like, no, no, it's fine. She's left Afghanistan. She's on her way home. And it was, he was like, okay. And then literally very soon after my dad gets a call for me and I'm a mess. That's where that phone call kicks in. Oh, yeah. So it was so crazy. And um, then my dad, of course, barely can understand what's happening, but he gets on the phone with the insurance company because he has all the information. So he's coordinating all of that from Canada for me. Yeah. Let the organization know this is what's happened. You know, so my dad makes sure like all my flights get upgraded to business class coming home. I'm in wheelchairs through all the airport. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Cause I'm, I can't even be walking. Right. Because the problem with the blood clot is the moment it moves or dislodges, it can, you know, yeah. it can work its way up and that's where they be- can become So how fatal. long were you in the hospital for? I was just in the hospital for the day. So they were able to do the testing that they needed to do and then get me on medication to start decreasing that blood clot it was a fair sized one and I was kind of like how did I get this blood clot like this is so crazy so that is one of the things with traveling and being you know immobile on a flight not drinking enough water people don't think about this but blood clots can develop that way I also was taking birth control at the time 
I was taking Yasmin um, and I was taking it for my skin because it just helps with, with all of that. I didn't know that Yasmin had been recalled <gasps> during that time. And it was recalled off the market for young women getting blood clots. Wow. Right? So I, here I am in Afghanistan for a couple of years and I'm taking it for like my own medical needs. And then it's like, didn't know that that had been recalled because of those reasons. So that was interesting. So they were trying to figure out, is it the flight? Is it the travel aspect that sort of, you know, kicked that? Or is it yeah. like that particular medication or whatever? So yeah, it was a big, it was a big deal. And again, like you're a single traveler, you know, you're relying on the good graces and knowledge of other people in a foreign country. Yes, it's Europe. It yeah. was at least Europe, but yeah. like... I didn't know how to do anything. And so I was totally reliant on these people, which were amazing. But uh, yeah, so when I got home to Canada, it was an even bigger deal than I thought. Because I li- I was so stressed on my flight out of the UK to get back to Vancouver. Because here I, I have to get on another flight. I have a blood clot. And I'm going, if anything happens mid-flight on this nine-hour flight, like I'm done. Yeah. Right. It's it's it was a very unsettling kind of feeling. And of course, like you're getting wheeled around Heathrow in an in a wheelchair. People are looking at you like you're not sick, like you don't look you're not old. You're not you know, people judge you like crazy. Right. But I was like, you don't know what's going on with me. But I uh, I got to bypass security and or like, you know, it was a, a streamlined version of security yes. going through checks and the stuff. Nexus. Oh, oh, yes. Here, this 24 year old in a wheelchair. Perfect. <laughs> it was so, so good. Yeah. So by the time I saw my family in Vancouver, it was such an emotional greeting. I can't even express to you what that was like coming home. Yeah. Yeah. And I bet it was... A- big relief for your parents oh as yeah well oh yeah here you were away in Afghanistan yeah and then having this happen to you in France on your yeah. way home yeah so absolutely tears were probably shed <laughs> absolutely it was so crazy so yeah wow yeah that's amazing so yeah. you're fully healed I'm fully healed <laughs> got a specialist appointment I saw a hematologist and he like you know cleared me to fly because like the year after I got home I was like hey I want to go to New Zealand to see some friends and everyone's like freaking out right because it's here you're gonna go on another flight and you've just had a like a dbt and whatever so yeah I had a hematologist clear me to fly again so so have you just out of curiosity because I fly with these yeah um compression stockings or compression socks do you I totally believe in them yeah they're a thing they're a thing. Baby aspirin, I don't think is. I know some people take baby aspirin for that kind of thing as well, but I the hematologist was like, I don't really think that's that's helpful. I think uh, compression socks are, and water is as yes. well. Those yeah. two things, and getting up and walking around, yeah. those three things will help you not get any kind of blood clot. For sure. <laughs> so. Crazy. I know. So thank you so much, Cassia, for coming on today again. Uh, how can people find you? Yeah, so if you want to get in touch with me or if you have any questions specifically about traveling to Afghanistan or anything like that, you can just reach out to me on Instagram. I use my my business account for my floral design world, but it's at blush and balsam. You can reach out to me there and I'll get back to you. Awesome. So I'll also link that in our show notes as well, just so that... Uh, people can find you and dm you if they've got any questions um but again thank you so much and thank you all for listening i hope you found today's episode on traveling as a solo woman to afghanistan helpful and inspiring 
Again, I'd like to thank my guest Cassia for joining me today and discussing her travels to Afghanistan and living there. I'm sure you all found it really fascinating, just like I did. And subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. I'd be so grateful if you could leave me a review and share this podcast with friends. If you have any thoughts on today's episode, or if you have any topics in mind you'd like me to cover in future episodes, please email me at podcasts at wonderlessjourney.ca or send me a message on Instagram at wonderlessjourney.ca. Thanks again for listening. See you again next week.